Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. We live in a world of fees. Airlines, hotels, food delivery, and especially car dealers all charge excessive last-minute fees. When you want something badly enough, it feels like your only choice is to pay up. But what if you had a choice to take a stand instead? At Carvana, we believe in treating you better. With zero hidden fees, you can drive off without feeling ripped off. That's what it means to live fearlessly with Carvana. It's that little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you can get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Hello and welcome back to Giant Size Heroes number seven this time, I think, if I've done my math correctly. Uh, but who knows? Because we're all discombobulated this week. Because we have no koi. No Kojandro, uh, which means we have our very first Giant Size Heroes guest. Uh-oh. <gasps> My name is Amy Dallin, and I am joined today by the one and only Sam Humphreys. Hi. Yo, what's up? How are you? <laughs> you already saw him on uh, Collider Heroes this week. I am good to answer your actual question. We do this all the time. Yeah. This is nothing new for us. This is great. <laughs> this I love is, it. I'm very excited because I, I like to drag Sam onto things when I can and have gotten to actually work with him more over on DC Daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has been an absolute delight. Our daily news show yeah. on DC Universe, yeah. Which, uh, where we have a great time talking about comics and all things uh, comic-related. But uh, never got a chance to bring you here before, so I'm so glad you could make it. I'm Thank happy you. to be here. This is awesome. This is a lot of fun. Because in addition to being fun to talk to about things, you are also a rad comic book creator. Thank you very much. Um, yes. I'm going to launch once again with my favorite news of this week, which oh, was that the incredible too. Dial H for Hero, written by Sam Humphries with art by Joe Canonis, mm-hmm. uh, has just been extended from six issues to 12. Yeah, we got renewed. It was supposed to be uh, a limited series, six-issue limited series. Uh, but uh, the response has been so strong that they decided to renew it, and now we're going for a full 12, uh, and we're just super, super excited. I have to ask you as a creator, did you, like, secretly have another six issues in your back pocket, or are you like, oh, no, what now? We absolutely did not. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's Dial H for Hero. Like, nobody expected it to go that long. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it was fun. I mean, it's not that DC wasn't supportive or anything like that, but it's just, it's Style Age for Hero. It's this wonky, silver age like, concept uh, that we uh, then decided to make the most of, and we're like, well, we get six issues, let's just pack these six issues in. Let's just pack it deep. Let's do it. Let's uh, enjoy this while it lasts. Exactly. Uh, but what we did come up with is we came up with a, a really cool concept that we were able to execute really well, which is that when somebody in the comic book uses the H style to transform into a different hero, the entire comic book changes as well. The whole comic book reading 
experience changes. And so Joe, with his artwork, his artwork changes styles. Uh, Jordan I Gibson, kept checking the, the credits to be like, wait, who's drawing this part of it? And it's like, it's just him. He's drawing the whole thing. Yeah, Jordan <laughs> changes colors. Dave Sharp, he changes the lettering. We change the narration, the storytelling, the layouts, the paneling, everything. Uh, and, and Joe, I mean, everybody on the team is so good. They're such chameleons. We've seen everything from, like, uh, early 90s image superhero stuff to uh, two two styles of manga, two different styles of manga. One that's kind of like Toriyama meets Suzuka, and the other is like Shiro meets Otomo. Uh, you can't uh, see me nodding intensely, but it's it's so beautiful. And the part of your brain that didn't know it always dreamed of seeing those styles fight is uh, going to be very excited. Yeah, they, uh, everybody's just pulling it off all on one panel, all on the same panel. You'll see these multiple styles uh, colliding. We had uh, in issue three... We had a very uh, 90s vertigo, dreamy, surreal, Shade the Changing Man character fighting a more hard-nosed tank girl slash Michael Allred <laughs> character right right on the same panel. It was amazing. It's all my favorite stuff. And the design work is incredible. Like oh, the, my God. The, the character designs. Logo and the, alterations in the, the corner. The logos. I know. Yeah. Every, everybody's just doing just like top of the industry work on this book. Uh, so we're having a lot of fun. We cannot wait to do six more. It's going to be great. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and the 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 book in question, Dial H, if you're not familiar, which some of you might not be because he's absolutely a classic hero, but not a wildly well-known one. Deep cut. <laughs> Deep cut for sure, yeah. Uh, gets different superpowers or superhero personas based on, traditionally, like a dial on his belt, I believe, before it was literally a phone. Uh, I think sometimes it was on their belt. The, the initial one was just a dial, mm-hmm. and I would put, and it was always based on like a rotary dial and a rotary phone. And... There were a lot of thoughts flying around, like, oh, it's 2019, let's make it an app, let's make it a smartphone, let's do this or that, the other thing. I was like, no, 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 no. We're <laughs> going to take that dial and we're going to stick it into a rotary phone. Because now a rotary phone is so exotic, it's like a crazy, mysterious DC Universe artifact yes. all on its own. yes. Yeah. Uh, and so those of you, uh, as most of you will be, I, I, I think we can all probably agree that like that the concept has a lot of life and it's had a lot of influence. I would be very surprised if the Ben 10 guys, some of whom we've talked to here on the show, uh, were not sort of influenced by a lot of what's been achieved. But like, uh, it's really fun. This is a wonderful new take on it. It's from that Wonder Comics imprint you've heard us talk about over at DC. Yes. Um, and we will get back into some of your questions for Sam, but... Uh, we have Hard some hitting news. questions. <laughs> some gotcha questions. We I'm have, ready to be fried. We have some news uh, that broke this week. So, first of all, official word on the movie news side the Joker movie's going to be rated R. Joker's be rated R. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The filmmaker, Todd Phillips, was confused that we were confused on that point. Was like, oh, did you not know this? Yes. Did you, were you not aware? Did you not see the trailer? Do you not know what we're going to do here? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an R. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it registers mostly as a, yeah, okay. That just definitely seems like what you're going for. Still don't know what this movie's going to be. Still looks fantastic. Still do not but... know what it is. Uh, but, yeah, it does uh, speak favorably of the uh, creative space that they're getting to make this version of the Joker and this interpretation of the Joker. Yeah. Uh, they could have, you know, Warner Brothers, whoever, could have easily said, any studio could have said, you know what, this is one of our marquee characters. We sell a lot of T-shirts with this character on it. Yeah, it needs to be PG or PG-13, and that's that's the end of that. But yeah. uh, it, it sounds like there's a compelling vision at play that justifies this hard R rating, so I can't wait to see what it is. That is the thing I'm most interested in. It, it seems like clearly someone had a take on it, and that is why this movie exists. And that's mm-hmm. always the most exciting like way to start something. Yeah, uh, a vision. 
Yeah. A vision, yes. So sometimes visions change for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> uh, That's a great transition into this one. Welcome to the Art of the Weird segue, which yeah. we're getting kind of obsessed with here. I love it. I love it. Size. Uh, we also heard this week from the actor who plays Cyclops, Ty Sheridan, uh, that the villains in Dark Phoenix, and this is... I mean, it's not a spoiler because it didn't end up happening, but if you haven't seen Dark Phoenix yet... It's a spoiler by exclusion, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. M- mute this for a couple seconds, I guess. I don't know how to do... We, we on, the, on the video version of this, we do like a hand-waving thing oh, sometimes when we're done back. with spoilers. Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, so apologies for that. We'll be done soon. Uh, but the villains in Dark Phoenix who, uh, in the movie, if you have seen it... Uh, were revealed to be the the Dabari, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, was the original race destroyed by the Phoenix Force in the classic Dark Phoenix saga, um, but of whom we've seen very little in Marvel, really. Sure. Um, it L- famously known as the Broccoli Head people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and notably lacking their broccoli heads in this movie. No, notably so, yes. Uh, but maybe that, that classic John Byrne design <laughs> they did for all of one or two panels. <laughs> uh, it. So, so we—that's what they were in the movie as we saw it. Uh, but apparently, there uh, originally was a different plan for them. At least at some point, they were gonna be scrolls. It's gonna be scrolls, which uh, is crazy. Uh, that would have been quite a twist because they're traditionally a Fantastic Four villain. Yeah, definitely a larger Marvel Universe villain. Sometimes Avengers, but they have not interacted with the X-Men much. I can't think of a major X-Men storyline where Skrulls were the focus. It's, it's funny because... I'm sure they, they have encountered them at least once or twice in minor ways, but there are no classic X-Men stories with the Skrulls in them. It would have been kind of a weird pick for me because there is so much to go to in X-Men. You've got the Angara, you've got the Brood, you've got all of these right. different aliens that are big parts of their mythology, uh, and the, the Skrulls really aren't. But I guess Fox was... The scrolls have lived in that weird, no one was sure who owned them, and then maybe kind of both people owned them situation, uh, which is why some folks theorized that we got the Chitari in the, the first Avengers movie, is that like maybe at that time it wasn't clear whether they could use the scrolls or the not, scrolls. because the scrolls possibly were sent to Fox along with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, because yep. they originally appeared first in Fantastic Four number two. Mm-hmm. Although, now that I'm saying that out loud, I've known that as like a piece of conventional wisdom for a long time that the Chitari were like maybe supposed to be the Skrulls, but that doesn't make any sense because that plot line had nothing to do with shape-shifting. No, it didn't. I don't know. I don't maybe know who, I fell yeah, for yeah. some internet clickbait thing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But it also would have been sort of a you know a a wild coincidence well, if there were two scroll movies this year. You you raise a great point in that um, you know the scrolls come with a story and they come with a theme, which mm. is shape changing and identity and all sorts of things. And we've seen that over the years in the Skull Kill Crew and all that kind of stuff. They're much more loaded than somebody like the Kree, who are basically just like super smart human looking aliens. For the record, uh, those of you listening who have not are not familiar with the Scroll Kill Crew, that's with an extra <laughs> yeah. K, um, mm-hmm. you definitely want to go look that up, that a memorable miniseries mini uh, a few a, years ago. A, a little known Grant Morrison work. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm... It's interesting because the more we learn about kind of the behind the scenes on Dark Phoenix and that that movie ran into sort of a number of expected and unexpected challenges, um, and it seems like needing to change up the plans for villains was part of that, but I'm not sure what I would have thought of the original Squirrels version because that would have also been a very different take on the Dark Phoenix story. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Dark Phoenix story is a classic X-Men story. It's a classic superhero story, and there's plenty in there to get into without bringing in uh, an alien element. Ho, 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 so to speak, pun intended. (laughs) Uh, So I think it was probably a wise move not to use them. 
Yeah. And uh, we we will all be revisiting that one for a long time because it you know. We, of course, all expected the actual aliens of the Shi'ar to be involved in the story. It's Um, the news bit that launched a thousand fanfics starting here, so... Hey! That's a nice way to look at it. It's like, I want to see everybody's take on... uh, I have been And how that story would work. Yeah. I bet somebody can prove me... Dumbass wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so often the case that you're like, that that doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, never mind. I love it. I yeah. love that feeling. Yeah. Um, but things that uh, we probably would not have come around on. Uh, we found out this week there was a, a story that went around that a movie studio called Orion in the 80s got somewhat close to making an X-Men movie. And this is mostly worth uh, looking at just for a piece of like, ooh, we probably dodged a bullet on this one. Sure. Uh, it seems like it was it, financial troubles, like sort of doomed the project before it could get terribly far. But they were getting comic book writers like Jerry Conway to work on it, and I think they said Claremont at some point. But they they were apparently just having a lot of uncertainty about what version they wanted to go with. And this is back in the days when when anyone trying to adapt something was like throw out everything recognizable about it. That's step one. Right. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, that that was the era of like uh, it was just it was a different time. Superhero movies were very different. That's when uh, James Cameron was going to direct Spider-Man and yeah. uh, Roger Corman made that Fantastic Four movie that they buried. <laughs> uh, when Sam Hamm, who was the screenwriter of Batman 89, wrote a not very great Watchmen screenplay. I've heard so much about whatever that script was. I, I read it back in the day. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, back, way back in the early internet. I think I got somebody sent it to me. I don't know if I paid <laughs> for it, but I think somebody just sent it, like printed it out and sent it to me. You knew a guy. I knew a guy, yeah, exactly, uh, and uh, it was uh, not great. But you know, probably an admirable uh, take on it, given the the climate of the day, which was we need to show the comic world what these characters are about. We need to show the comic world how to really tell a blockbuster story. And it does seem like there there was a lot of answering to people in boardrooms who were like, "What? They're mutants? What is that? What? Why would we? Yeah, you know, like a, a, a weird need." Rather than approaching it material first to sort of be like, sell me on this. Exactly. You know? And also, you know, probably a lot of uh, understandable nerves because the technology at the time, uh, oh, yeah. making the superpowers uh, 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 convincing was very difficult. Um, especially when you're talking about somebody like the Human Torch or a Storm or somebody like that. It's one thing to make Superman fly. It's another thing entirely to make Iceman walk and talk all the time. That's true. Uh, and, you know, it's like uh, you, you need somebody to take the risk and show you the way first. And a lot of somebody's did that with movies over the years, but particularly Blade and the first X-Men movie in 2000. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speaking of X-Men movies, we also got an interesting piece of uh, news release this week, which was that it looks like it didn't come particularly close to happening. But uh, the editor for many of the X-Men films, who's also the composer, uh, told revealed this week that there had been a point where uh, he, working with someone else who worked on the production, had pitched a solo film for Beast. Yes. Uh, that would have happened before Dark Phoenix, which is just a fascinating concept. Uh, Kinberg, who ultimately wrote and directed Dark Phoenix, as you know, uh, did not read it because he was in the middle of working on stuff and didn't want to be influenced by it. Um, but they've released that script online now, and I have not read it. But uh, uh, What is the take? Do you know? The take is apparently that Beast will uh, end up like there was somebody else that he was like trading notes on technology with about his transformations who would essentially go bad uh, and then like – cause trouble in a tiny town somewhere that Beast would have to sort of go confront uh, that that other rogue scientist. Um, and I think they were going to reintroduce Wolverine in that context. Mm, I'm a little mm-hmm. fuzzy. Sorry, I read this 
the summary several days ago. Sure. Uh, but uh, so it would sort of take him away from the X Men to go investigate that and like have kind of a uh, stop the dark version of you storyline. Right. Um, that, see, I, I would love to see a, a comedy, oh, a comedy of Beast fun. where he's a school teacher. Yeah. Like kindergarten cop, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, I, and I do. I, Big blue and fuzzy beast teaching I, the kids. I long for more school stuff. I, you know, as yeah. a Jason Aaron Wolverine and the X Men fan. Oh my god, what a um, great run, huh? It was mm-hmm. so much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, you want to, especially mm-hmm. if we're living in the world where the X Men have a school. Like that school should be full of mutants. They should be weird looking. They mm-hmm. should be dealing with a variety of stuff. And there are literally infinite stories you can tell in schools. That's why we keep doing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we should have. Uh, uh, an X-Men show that's like Degrassi but with superpowers. <laughs> it should be a high school show. Degrassi but it's high oh school soap, God, right? Oh my God, Oh yeah. <laughs> Incredible high school soap. So good. So good. I so can't. Okay. what would the Degrassi version of X-Men look like other than probably like the X-Men comics I remember? You would just have uh, yeah, it's funny because Degrassi used to be on the end which was kind of like uh, Nick Jr. at night kind of mm-hmm. thing so it'd be like uh, older teen programming and the the ads for Degrassi would say, it goes there. And it's true, because Degrassi would always, always go there. They had all sorts of uh, storylines that were about, like, uh, hooking up and STDs and uh, pregnancy, teen pregnancy and Aww. abortion. And they, they kept it very real. They tackled the big issues. And it would be really cool to see that in the context of superheroes and superpowers and mutants and feeling like you're a freak and you don't belong and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds like a, a perfect setup for like a legacy virus storyline. Oh, of. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, shoot, someone make that. Come on, y'all. Wake <laughs> up, sheeple. <laughs> Uh, We are, speaking of kids having amazing adventures, uh, we did hear from Zachary Levi this week, who's on the press Mm -hmm. tour, uh, that they are looking out, they're taking out some filming dates, they're writing the sequel for Shazam right now. Great news, fantastic news, I love this. It is, I'm I'm very excited because the end of Shazam was my favorite part because Mm -hmm. of what it seemed like, I would definitely watch more of this with the Shazam. The promise. I think we're fairly out of spoiler territory, but the Shazam family... Spoilers, the Shazam family is in Shazam, okay? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, You know, I, we were talking about this on the show just a few scant minutes ago. Uh, everybody likes to talk about superhero fatigue and are people sick of superheroes and blah, blah, blah. What a lot of those people don't realize is that we've been doing superheroes and comics for 80 years. Mm. And we've developed multiple, multiple takes on superheroes. Superheroes is a genre, not a medium, correct? But there are so many different takes on superheroes. And if you just have, like, we were talking uh, in the studio about the boys. Yeah. And then you have Shazam. And if you draw a line between the two, you have a pretty big spectrum right there. Yeah. That is a long spectrum with a lot of interesting points in between. Not all stories need to be all other stories. Exactly. sometimes they can be sweet ones about foster families that are weirdly heartbreaking. Thanks, Shazam. Yes. Yes. So (laughs) I'm happy to see success for Shazam and just a broader sense of what a superhero story can be. Yeah. Uh, speaking of a broader sense of what a superhero story can Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Let's do this. I yeah. love this next piece. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has officially voiced support for Ironheart yes. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, author Eve Ewing was introducing him at an event. Uh, and she, of course, is a well-known uh, writer and poet who is the current writer on the Ironheart comics. Correct. Um, which I've really been digging. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, ma- made sure that that would not get lost. That that the, the official thumbs up from Iron Man. We 
have no idea, of course, whether that reflects just him being awesome and having good taste. It probably doesn't reflect an official announcement by the studio, but it's still fun. Yeah. I mean, it's still <laughs> great to think about. And, you know, it's great to see somebody like Robert Downey Jr. throw his weight behind a character like Ironheart. Uh, and, you know, uh, Marvel's going to produce a lot of stuff, so why not Ironheart? We should have an Ironheart series or cartoon or something or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. speaking of 80 years of superheroes, it gives you a lot of time and space to play with different stuff, which, you know, as we like to remind folks uh, or remind each other, like, is not a new thing in comics, playing with alternate versions of characters. Marvel used to do it less than DC, but they are now sort of fully in the legacy game. Yeah, Uh well, I I think, you know, maybe they were not in it as much because uh, their universe was younger than DC's. It may just be um, once you get to a certain point or a certain critical mass of storylines in a single universe, then you naturally, you know... You naturally turn towards legacy. I mean, the legacy is the beating heart of the DC universe. I say this all the time. We wouldn't have the stories that we have without legacy. Yeah, and I guess, and I to contradict myself a little bit, it's less of a signature move on Marvel's part, but it's not as if they ever haven't dabbled in this stuff. Like we had friggin' Eric Masterson Thunderstrike, I think, was oh. Thor for a while in the eight, in the early nineties. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we we have uh, Miles Morales as Spider Man. Yeah. In the movies, in Spider-Verse. <laughs> he, he was Spider-Man, as were uh, a half dozen other Spider-Men. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, we just have the Flash TV show, who is not the first Flash. Mm. He is a legacy character. He is the Ironheart of the original Jay Garrick Flash from the Golden Age. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never thought about it that way, but that's that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and just as famously confronted his own uh, Tony Stark in Flash of Two Worlds. Oh, uh, now I want to read just the crossover fan fiction about Riri and Tony and Jay oh, and God. Barry. Oh. It'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. <laughs> write it for me, Sam. I'm on it. <laughs> I have a comic I'm, book I'm writer sure in no studio. problem getting that, get that approved. <laughs> that right situation sounds really simple. <laughs> They'll love it. Uh, this is just rumor corner, but the other another fun thing that happened this week is that we are starting to get casting rumors for Shang-Chi. Yeah. Things we actually know are happening at, uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that Shang-Chi is getting a movie. And we are starting to hear some names. We've heard uh, Donnie Yen for a role yet to be announced. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a mentor. Maybe an evil dad. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also got Ludi Lin and Ross Butler, uh, two folks with some, some appropriate resumes that may or may not be meeting for this part. Again, we can't confirm any of this. It's just what... Somebody told somebody they heard. Right. Um, but they seem like reasonable choices. I was impressed by, uh, I think it was Ludi Lin in Aquaman. I was like, yes. who is that guy? Mm-hmm. Um. He's great. <laughs> uh, and again, this is just, uh, we're, we're talking about a spectrum of superhero stories. Mm-hmm. Shang-Chi is a fantastic example of a different kind of superhero story, a, different, a kind of superhero story we have not seen before. It's uh, it's like crossfaded with martial arts movies, and in fact, Shang Chi <laughs> was a mainstay of Marvel comics in the seventies, and influenced by all the kung fu movies that were coming over to America at the time. So I'm all about this. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what this movie's going to be and mm-hmm. how. The, but I'm just excited to see it filled out with like a, a variety of characters within that world, mm-hmm. um, I, because I, I, I mean, to draw this parallel in, in for both obvious and non obvious reasons, I really loved what they did with Black Panther, uh, both because everything that they did was amazing, uh, and second, because it filled out this entire world and, like, one of the great supporting casts, I would say. Absolutely. Of uh, modern movie making or of superheroes. And if they can Wakanda, Shang-Chi, yeah. it's going to be fantastic. Yes. It's going to be amazing. And yeah. maybe take home some more production design Oscars. I don't know. Of course, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so that's just exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now. Uh, oh, yeah. This is a uh, t- surprise. Uh, it's time to talk a little bit about Sam Humphreys. Who? Me? <laughs> We're talking about me now? Oh, shucks. So I want to, to do the start at the beginning for folks who might not be familiar. Uh, yeah. You uh, Well, okay. I'm actually going to, again, contradict myself. You are currently writing Harley Quinn at DC. That's correct. Blackbird at Image Comics. That's correct. Dial H for Hero. At DC Comics, yes. At DC, yes, mm-hmm. back at DC. Uh, is there anything going on right now that I'm forgetting? There's a fourth. There's Goliath Girls, which is a digital first book on uh, Comixology Amazon. Yes! Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're juggling at least three different companies. Uh, yeah, which, three different companies right now, yeah. And you have worked at many different, in the past you did a, right. a, a lot of great Marvel work. Uh, shout out to the Star-Lord and Kitty Pride miniseries. Oh my god, yes. Dear to my heart. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I love that one too. Uh so, what was where, go go to the way way back? How way, did you get into comics? Like, how did I break in? And how did you get to fall in love with comics? Oh my god! Well, I was I was a kid who loved comics, like a lot of us were, <laughs> you know. Uh, I the first comics I I always I remember always having like three to five comics just kind of floating around my my room when mm-hmm. I was a kid. But the ones that really stuck with me were actually uh, three issues of Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. Yes, the much derided '80s landmark <laughs> event series, but some t- gently made fun of, but also loved. Uh, uh, amazing Mike Zach artwork, mm-hmm. uh, and that was great for me. I, I loved it. I was hooked by the story, but I was also hooked by the the breadth of characters, mm-hmm. like the scope of the, the characters. Of it. Yes, exactly, uh, and it was a great. Sort of introduction, because from there, I could go, like, I mean, I, I was like, these X-Men look cool. I'm going to get into X-Men. And, uh, ooh, kind of like, I like Thor a lot. I'll get branched into Thor. Like, what's the Hulk story? You know what I mean? Like, you could just go in a million different directions from a book like Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. So it was a very great um, introduction uh, for me into the Marvel Universe. Uh, and I was a Marvel Universe zombie for what seemed like uh, was a decade, but it was probably about a year and a half before the Batman movie came out. And then uh, I was like, I love Batman now. And then from there, I branched out into the DC universe. And uh, I was, you know, my, my habit was enabled, as many were who grew up in the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, uh, by a comic book store called Schinder's. Which was a chain of, there were like newsstands, but in a store format, and there were like nine of them scattered around suburban Minneapolis-St. Paul, and and one famous one in downtown. And they carried newspapers from all over the world, a full spectrum of magazines and baseball cards, but also comic books, and they had back issues too. Uh, So there were, in Minneapolis, there's, I believe, a particularly strong comic scene for a city of its size because comics were so available and in such a wide area. If not that, I would have had to go convince my parents, actually, not me, I I couldn't go there myself, but Mm -hmm, convince mm -hmm. my parents to take me downtown Minneapolis every Friday, which used to be New Comic Book Day, Mm. which would have been impossible. Mm -hmm. But instead, in the suburbs of Minneapolis, there was a store 10 minutes away and it was near the Target, so I could just tag along when Mom had to go to Target, and that's how I got my comic fix every week. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did not know about that. I wonder if there was a person, like, in charge of being like, nah, we should have back issues that made that call for Schinders. I, just... I, I wonder. It was a family-owned business. Yeah. Schinders' name, founded by an immigrant in the early 1900s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. And then they just, um, they ex- 
I don't know, grew. As, as far as I knew, there were, you know, when I was growing up, there was always shinders all around the place. That's so cool. Uh, and now they're gone. Oh, no. Yeah, one of the family members tanked it, apparently. So that's oh. that. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. But uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of creators around the Minneapolis-St. Paul area who are like, oh, yeah, my comic book store was a shinders. Yeah. My comic book store was a shinders. It made it very available to people in, uh, in that area. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. When did you know that you were going to make them? Uh, that's a great question because I had many different points in my life where I thought I was going to make comics, mm-hmm. and then I was like, and then I burned out for one reason or another. Where I was like, <laughs> screw this, I'm done with comics, I'm out. As a reader, too, as well. Uh, and, you know, there was, there was one famous, famous, it's not a famous moment, but one big moment in my life where uh, I got sick of comics. I was reading a lot of Marvel and DC. I got caught up in, like, the multiple copies, the mm-hmm. multiple covers. I mm-hmm. bought, like, probably 25 copies of X-Men number one with Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. Aww. The most common comic book of all time is going to be the least valuable comic book of all time. I got I got conned. I got Aww. swindled, you know? And I was like, forget this. I'm done. I'm out. And literally, like, my last trip to the comic book store, there were posters for two books. Uh, one was Give Me Liberty by Frank Miller and Dave Gibbons, and the other was uh, Hard Boiled by Frank Miller and Jeff Darrow, both oh, from Dark Horse wow. Comics. They launched, if not the same month, right around the same time. Wow, wow, wow. And I knew Frank Miller, of course, because I already loved Batman Year One and Batman The Dark Knight Returns. And, you know, Frank Miller was one of those creators who were doing, like, real, you know, quote-unquote mature comics, that kind yeah. of thing. And I was like, okay, it those really two was good. groundbreaking work, yeah. Exactly. I was like, okay, this... Uh, looks acceptable, I will come back and buy those too. But just by doing that, I pierce that like perceptual veil of like, I can read things outside of Marvel and DC. And because of that, I started reading things along Dark Horse, this is before Image, uh, and then I from there branched out into manga and European stuff and underground. Uh, I was huge into raw comics. There were raw comics edited by... Um, uh, Art Spiegelman and oh, Francois wow. Malloy, uh, and that's where a lot uh, of cartoonists come out of that. You're right. Oh yeah, exactly. Chris Ware, Gary Panter, um, Linda Berry, uh, oh, Sue yes. Co. Uh, I, I could go on forever. I'm, I'm forgetting names. I'm blanking. Oh, uh, Use Suerte. Uh, d- uh, cartoons from uh, Africa. Cartoons from the Netherlands. You know what I mean? From all over the place. I read Crazy Cat for the first time oh, in raw comics. It was really? just an anthology where they just packed it full of all sorts of stuff. Uh, Mark Bayer did a, a short with Alan Moore. It's probably the least known Alec M- Alan Moore story of all time. Uh, but it was just uh, a fantastic thing. Uh, uh, Jacques Tardy, who is one of my favorites, oh my you know. Yeah. Uh, I was entirely too young to be reading a lot of that stuff. But <laughs> I did anyway, and it blew my mind. Anyway, that's so how. So instead of quitting comics, you got into all the I comics into, in the world. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, I thought I was quitting, and the exact I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But yeah, that was one of those moments where I was like, I'm done with comics, I'm done with comics. So there have been moments throughout my life where... Yeah, I was like, oh, I want to make comics. For a long time, I thought I was going to draw comics. Mm, really? Yeah, I was going to draw comics, and then I realized, you know what, I, I just don't have the... Uh, I have the love, but I just don't have the patience for it. Mm-hmm. It takes a certain kind of temperament to draw comics and to be able to draw everything at a given notice. You have to know how to draw a fork. You have to know how to draw a super tall megazord. You have to, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you have to be able to draw everything, and at a certain point, I realized, like, I just, I, that's not me. That's just not for me. Yeah, your passion was not memorizing what trees look like. It was uh, 
Exactly. In a different area. Or, or just having the patients sit down and draw all day. I yeah. bless the people who do. Oh my God! But, bless uh, <laughs> them. Yeah, exactly. I, I say that with admiration. Absolutely. Uh, so. I know we, we've talked about in different places in the past about it sort of being uh, a long road into comics that eventually what sort of cracked through was just actually somehow making them yourself, right? Yeah. With the support mm-hmm. of, of other people that you met who were also aspiring. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the way I broke into comics was, um, well, I'd, I'd gotten uh, I gotten laid off from a job mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, you know what, I, I have like a little bit of money and I'm not married, I'm a kid, I don't have a mortgage. If I'm ever going to try to break into comic books, like now would be the time to do it. Mm. Like this is the cliche moment that I will look back on on my deathbed. Two cliche moments. So as a writer, you recognize the narrative trope. I and did, you were like, yeah. oh, this is that time. I, was I like, should here's maybe my do character that. arc. Aww. Yeah, yeah. I have two possible character arcs here. Uh, I'll look back on this moment and regret it. And I had done some networking in the comic book industry just from various jobs I had that overlapped with comic books uh, and just bringing my my passion for comic books into other areas and other jobs. Um, So it was uh, something that I felt like I will never be better prepared than this. Like, it's still scary. I'm still jumping off a cliff and learning how to fly on the way down. But it, it will just never get better than this. Um, and I think I heard your name first for Sacrifice and Our Love is Real. I'm yes, not sure in, in which exactly. order, but Probably Our Love is Real okay. first. Uh, what, what happened was I just pitched a lot. And I had a couple of short stories, but nothing was moving forward. And I felt like I was running out of time. And I, I just uh, – I, I, I knew just because of the, the production schedule of comics that I probably wasn't going to have a comic out for an entire year. I think it was 2011, um, maybe 2012. Uh, and I was like, if if I'm going to have comics out this year, I'm going to have to self-publish them. I'm going to have to make them myself. So I worked with artists on Our Love is Real. I worked with Stephen Sanders and on Sacrifice. I worked with Dalton Rose. And we just moved forward. And I, it wasn't an anti-publisher kind of thing. I still showed these books to publishers, but it was like, these books are happening. Whether The, the train is leaving the station whether you're on yeah, it or not yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And I, I showed them both to tons of publishers, uh, You know, many of whom were like, Cool, but all right, you know, like you kind of get the soft no on it. Uh, But I just, I was like, if I don't self-publish, and again, you know, in the 90s after I split from superheroes, I, you know, I I remember people like uh, Paul Pope and Scott McCloud and even Dave Sim, who is, you know, these days, but back then was, they were all talking about the power of self-publishing. David Lapham with Straight Bullets and Mm -hmm. Steve Bissett with Tyrant and all that kind of stuff. Those guys, Jeff Smith with Bone, mm-hmm. these guys are real inspirations because they're talking about taking the bull by the horns and putting your destiny in your own hands. And I remembered the spirit of that era and I channeled it into my own self-publishing uh, comics. And that's that's how I broke in. That's beautiful. Uh, our, our, let's see, what... I'm curious because I, I know I have my favorites, but I also know that some of your early work might not be super available. Do you have, like, a favorite early thing that people can still get that you would want to point them to? God, well, Our, our, our Love is Real, uh, it's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, no spoilers, but uh, it's definitely not anything you'd expect. When, when, I, when I decided to self-publish, I was like, I'm going to do two books. I had, like, 12 pitches or whatever that's kicking around. I was like, I'm going to pick the ones that only I can do. Mm-hmm. The ones that will not exist 
if I don't do them. Yeah. You know, like there's tons, we've all seen them, books, movies, TV shows, whatever. They're just like two combinations of the high concept wheel. Sure. You know, and you're like, somebody would have eventually made that. Somebody would have eventually made the haunted car or whatever. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. But these were books that I felt like only I could do. Um, so, That's the kind of thing, by the way, that a comic book writer can say. Like, someone's eventually going to hit on haunted, haunted car. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Somebody's going to do the haunted car. Uh, maybe somebody already has at this point. Um, so, uh, yeah, Our Love is Real and Sacrifice are uh, – Sacrifice is more conventional. Uh, it's a, a conventional time travel Aztec adventure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, compared to Our Love is Real, which has <laughs> several shockingly unconventional elements to it. Uh, yeah, uh, Sacrifice is about a modern-day guy who ends up going back in time to the Aztec Empire, and he has to – Stop the Spanish conquest from happening. Uh, and I love that book. And Dalton, Dalton Rose's art is great. Uh, he and I are still in contact. He's awesome. Uh, so I love when people come up and they have discovered that book. Because it meant a, that book means a lot to us. So I love when people discover it. Oh. Uh, so, of the stuff that you have going on right now, which, again, is several books at once, while you also hang out with us on DC Daily, That's first right. of all, how are you doing that? Uh, oh my god! Uh, just by the skin of my teeth, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so just hanging on by my fingernails. Blackbird is tremendously exciting because, Thank of you. course, uh, I, like many people, have been a huge Jen Bartel fan As for many yep. years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jen Bartel Interiors is like a, a dream that materialized out of the air. How Absolutely. did that book come into being? Uh, you know, we were just friends, and uh, we uh, would talk in a, in, a, in a group chat with a bunch of other people and just uh, talking about the stuff we were working on and talk about the comic book industry and some of the comic books that we saw that we thought sucked and some of the comic books that we saw that we thought were awesome and just talking in a, in a group setting about what we wanted to see in the comic book industry that we weren't getting. Um, and that's how we sort of discovered that we had similar sensibilities or there may be some overlap there um and jen of course has uh, amazing artwork but primarily known for her covers and her illustration work and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff um she was feeling as if she uh might be ready to get into doing sequential interiors and i said you're absolutely 100 percent ready uh and that that's how we did it and i said look i i don't want to do i don't want to dig through like my pile of pitches and try and retrofit one for you, for Jen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I wanted to come up, for the two of us to come up with something together uh, that more accurately reflected sort of this, this Venn diagram of our interests and what we think is cool and excluded the things that we think aren't so cool. Um, and that's how that's how we came up with the concept of Blackbird. Uh, which so if you if you are interested in magic in uh, contemporary life as it interests it's like a urban fantasy I guess yeah I urban hadn't fantasy thought about that, but, yeah um, it's it's, a, it's about a girl who uh, has has for years believed that magic is real and everybody laughed at her about it uh, and she lives in Los Angeles uh, in her twenties now and uh, her sister gets kidnapped by a giant demon and she's the only one who uh, has any idea how to get her back. Mm-hmm. I've noticed uh, with Blackbird and with some of her other work uh, your. I, I wonder your your books have a strong sense of place. Mm, Does that mm-hmm. come from like having a real hometown, or is it just the like how much I, I notice that the the wear of it, which can sometimes be incidental to a story, is rarely right. incidental in yours. That's a great question. I never really thought about it that way. It, <laughs> I mean, it may be because yeah, I grew up in uh, suburban Minneapolis from like five years old till I graduated high school. Um, I've also lived in Los Angeles for twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I have not had. 
except for a couple brief periods, I've not bopped around mm-hmm. like a lot of people have in the world. Um, so maybe that's part of it, or maybe I just like, you know, I, re- I remember seeing um, Atlanta for the first time, mm-hmm. the TV show, and just feeling like, I, I remember comparing it to Star Trek, because it you felt like you were going to another world, and it felt so rich and so real, and it felt just suffused with this authenticity on top of the amazing performances and the great writing and the humor and blah, 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 you know what I mean? Like, you just felt like you were almost like you were submerged in this warm bath. Like, like just the setting was all around you when you watched the show. As if rich world building was food. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or like Inherent Vice is like that to me, too. I know that's not everybody's fav- favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, but mm-hmm. it is mine. Um, or the Coen Brothers, you know, they're from Minnesota. Maybe that, maybe it's the Coen Brothers example. Because oh, interesting. I've never from made Minnesota, that connection. Yeah. And I've loved them since way, way back because they were ours first. You Aww. know what I mean? Like, we, we <laughs> love them first. Minnesota hipsters claim exactly, the Coen Brothers. That's exactly. beautiful. Or they're just, they're just like super, like, quirky and smart in a very Minnesotan way. But they, their movies all have a very strong place sense of place. Wait, so y'all made Prince do. and the Coen Brothers? What's going on up there? Exactly. We had Prince and the Coen Brothers. Uh, we also had Bob Dylan. Oh, my God. We had Judy Garland. <laughs> uh, I mean, we could even just get into the political end of things. We had Jesse the Body Ventura. We had Paul <laughs> Wellstone. We had Michelle Bachman. I mean, we're all over the map, for sure. <laughs> okay, I do have... Uh, well, okay, before we get to that... You also are tackling – you're creating a wholly original world in Blackbird, which, mm-hmm. by the way, you can get the first trade paperback of right now. Available now, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're also working with a modern-day icon. What's it like writing Harley Quinn? Oh, my God. It's amazing. She's great. <laughs> it's like um, – I don't know. It's like uh, have, having this like amazing, crazy, off-the-wall friend that you can go hang out with whenever you want. And that's what I hope reading the comic is like. You know what I mean? Like you have uh, a, a it, it's like a friend who is always a hundred percent herself. You know, she's always a hundred percent authentic. It's not that she's crazy or wacky or weird. She's always herself, and she kind of doesn't give a frig about what anybody <laughs> else thinks about what she should be. And sometimes it gets her into conflicts, uh, and sometimes it gets her into trouble. But she always goes back to her heart and her emotional core, uh, you know, which is her family. So uh, that's, you know, I, I, I hope everybody has a friend like that in their lives uh, who, uh, you know, kind of leads with their chin. Mm-hmm. And when they screw up, they figure out how to make good on it. Yeah. yeah. I, I love what you, you've just gotten uh, at one of my favorite things about the character who has been sort of a difficult character to describe the appeal of over the years. Like you yes. instantly get it, but you find it it's very difficult to tell someone what's so great about Harley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for a long time, I would sort of lead with the fact that there's this weird, even when she's a villain, there's a weird aspirational quality to a female character who just does not care whether this is coming off stupid or great or whatever, like doesn't care what anybody thinks of her, is not embarrassed, uh, is just enjoying what she's doing. Yep. And usually not enjoying the cruelty of it, but enjoying the like, just with gusto, just like a dance like no one's watching. Yeah, exactly. Case, crime like no one's she, watching. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, she she uh, loves to be extra, you know what I mean, and I, and I mean with all admiration. I yearn to be as extra as her, you know. What I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you see like even if, if you're not a fan of her music, when you see like Mariah Carey being 
uh, so crazy and out there and, and pulling off these crazy stuff, these crazy things, or, you know, you're just like, man, I, I wish I could get away with that in my day-to-day life. And Harley Quinn is the kind of person who does. That's She beautiful. does get away with it. Supervillain Mariah Carey, or will not yep. supervillain, mostly anti-hero these anti-hero. days, which I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, anti-hero, I'm... solidly anti-hero. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Uh, so, speaking of comics, we do have some comics to get into this yeah, week. Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, which we mentioned our pull list, and I, I made this without consulting you. So, if you had any other picks that are looking forward to this week, let me know. But okay. here's the top of my list. This is a good list. Usagi Yojimbo, number one. This is a crazy story, isn't it? Yeah! Usagi is a, a, a mainstay of comic books. He's been published in the direct market since the late 70s, I want to say. I feel like he comes around in the 80s. I feel like he just turned 30. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But it comes out of the 80s black and white uh, comic book boom Mm -hmm. and has been written and drawn by one guy. the contemporary of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stan Sakai has been doing Usagi stories consistently for literally decades now. Yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. he has hopped around homes a couple times. So I don't know why this is happening, but he's just, he, he was at Fantagraphics, then he was at Dark Horse for a long time. And this is his very first issue at IDW, and it's going to be in color. Yep. Which mm-hmm. is uh, just only shocking if you're you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. It, usually in black and white. He's been in color a couple times before, but this mm-hmm. is not usual for uh, the book. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just it's very surreal to see a number one. Yeah. For Usagi. You know, so it's he's like, a, uh, essentially he's a, a rabbit ronin, a masterless samurai mm-hmm. who goes around having adventures in uh, a wonderful anthropomorphic Japan, uh, anthropomorphic historical Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is delightful. His supporting cast is delightful. His stories manage to have wonderful adventure stakes, but also while still starring a cartoon rabbit, like You Will Cry over yeah. cartoon rabbit adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that And it just, when you're reading that book, it all makes perfect sense. Yep. Uh, it's it, we're talking about vision earlier. It's a singular vision. Mm-hmm. There's no other book like it in comics. And it is. It's just nice to to know that that's like it's a perfect jumping on point. It is literally called Usagi Yojimbo Number One. You don't need to know any of this stuff to read it or enjoy it. Uh, but I just love that this exists. That there's it's space and comics one. for this. What a yeah. world. <laughs> uh, now this next one, yes. I'm glad you put it on the list because oh, yeah, I good. haven't read it yet, but I love both of these creators. Yes, okay, yes. so Brandon Thomas and Carrie, uh, Carrie Randolph? Carrie Randolph. Uh, are doing a book over at Image called Excellence. And I hadn't put the number one on my list because I hadn't, like, I didn't have a preview of it, uh, but I, it sort of moved rapidly up my pull list once I read it. Uh, the second issue of this book is out. It is about a young man who is the heir to a magical legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of expectations on him. There's a lot of familial pressure on him. Uh, and he is the the sort of organization that he's going to matriculate into here uh, has just immediately from the outset, you will have a lot of questions. If he ends up tearing this organization to the ground, I'm not sure I'm going to be mad about it. <laughs> uh, but in a fun way that I'm, yeah. I'm uh, immediately, uh, based on one issue, I'm already super invested in this world they're making where I'm like, why is it like that? Why does that rule exist? Why can't women be wizards? What's the deal here? <laughs> like, uh, his grandmother is wonderful. There, a little bit of language warning on this book. It's an image comic, so yeah. uh, mm-hmm. they can do what they want. Uh, but it's fabulous. It's just really fun, and it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, Carrie Randolph, he's been doing amazing work. Uh, I'm, I'm just so excited to see them together. I don't know that I ever would have thought about this casting bringing them together, but uh, I can't wait to dig into these It's a books. great way to think about, like, casting, combining the forces of these creators. Uh, yes. 
Brandon mm-hmm. Thomas in the back sort of talks about that they had been coming up simultaneously and kind of, as he puts it, yeah. nodding at each other. Um, but right. they had not yet ever sort of found the thing that brought them together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I'm very excited to see where that one goes. This next one uh, is a book I'm very excited exists in the world, sort of like too weird to be real, but I'm so happy that it got made. It's called Rolled and Told. Mm -hmm. It's been on my pull list before, uh, but this is the first collection of it. There's a hardcover. And Rolled and Told is essentially a magazine uh, aimed at folks who like comics and who might be interested in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. It contains original little adventures you can play, short comic book stories, and then articles about running games and and, and past experience, but they got some fabulous indie cartoonists to contribute to this. Editor Christina Steens Stewart put this project together, yep. mm-hmm. uh, who is just a, a force to be reckoned with. She certainly is. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know if we're getting. I think there will be a volume two of this. I don't know that we're getting more we'll of it. So, would hope um, so. But uh, in the meantime, if you missed out on those issues, uh, go get rolled and told. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this next one. Okay, I haven't read it yet, but we have to tell you at least about this book because I have no idea what to expect from this. Frank Miller's writing Superman. Could be crazy. <laughs> Could be crazy. Who knows what's going to happen next? Superman Year One, number John one. John Romita Jr. Yes. I mean, first of all, like, what a crazy team up. Yes. I mean, not not crazy, but uh, what what uh, an exemplary team up. They they have teamed up before. They did Daredevil Man Without Fear back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was nineties, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds uh, right. Not sure. And uh, and they uh, are coming back together to tell one of the biggest possible comics in the DC universe, which is Year One Superman from from Frank Miller, who defined Year One with Batman Year One. Mm-hmm. Now he's turning to Superman, and it's on the uh, Black Label imprint, which is significant because they will have considerably more leeway to tell the kind of story that they want independent of whatever may or may not be going down in the DC universe at the time. Right. So this Mm -hmm. may or may not match, essentially, like, the things that we read here may or may not be true for the Superman that Bendis is writing. That's correct. But it uh, should ideally be uh, its own very interesting story. This is an oversized one. There's going to be three issues of this series. uh, And... I mean, I'll, John Romita Jr. is just always beautiful. Always so good. <laughs> always so good. Uh, I really like what we've seen before, his interpretation of Superman. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see the full full reading experience. So we will convene back as uh, clearly, I mean, obviously we're, we're all going to be picking this up. This is going to uh, be a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've learned from some friends, not everybody knows this is happening. So that's what this show is here for. Uh, War of the Realms, Journey into Mystery number five. Yes. That, that is uh, sneaking in there to represent the fact that Corey and I keep picking weird War of the, War of the Realms tie-ins because that's just <laughs> where we are as readers is we're, we love, like, weird books that happen on the fringes of crossovers. This one is Journey into Mystery, which is, of course, a famous title usually related to Thor. In this case, it is uh, a road trip quest to protect Thor's baby niece, uh, baby sister. I'm getting that wrong. Okay. Uh, and uh, a, a, just a wonderful bunch of Marvel Comics weirdos like Kate Bishop uh, and Miles Morales uh, going on the road to protect a baby in the shadow of the world-altering events of War of the Realms. And as we got into on Collider Heroes, it's written by the McElroy brothers and their dad. Yep. Which is just adorable. Gotta get dad in there. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, and it is drawn by Araujo. Uh, I'm probably saying that wrong. But. Uh, you're close. Andre Lima Ararujo. There we go. Yes. Uh, who is my Portuguese brother. He Aww. was my partner uh, back when I was at Marvel. We did uh, Avengers AI together. A book which has been slept on, but you should go find. Thank you very much. Uh, he does amazing work. He does fantastic work. And he really 
brings a, a European sensibility to superhero comics. Uh, I can't say enough about how good his work is, so I'm always always happy when he uh, has a, a, a new project announced. Uh, uh, he did have a, another new project announced this week, which we will talk about a little later down the line. Excellent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we also, uh, I mean, and you all know by now, uh, Deadpool and Captain Marvel are both out this week. I feel like at this point it goes without saying, for Koi's sake and my sake, that you should be reading those books. Um, but, uh, you know, wanted to mix it up with some indies uh, and give some some love to some stuff we don't always get around to on the show. Uh, as you also heard on Collider Heroes, our official bonus pick of the week is a regular book, but it's about comics. You should be grabbing Super Soldiers by Jason Inman. Yes. Friend of show, friend What's of up, Jason? us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most qualified person to write this book. He's the man to write this book. Yeah. And a book that needs to be written. I'm really excited to check it out. It's both a, like both a fun and serious look at the ideals of the armed forces and how they are or aren't reflected in the various comic book characters who have passed as service members. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a great history of plenty of superheroes who have a history in the military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can get all of Jason's perspective on sort of those choices and what it means and, of course, drawing on his his personal experiences there, and his lifetime of comic book fandom, and that's available now. We just talked about recently on DC Daily a superhero with a uh, military background with Batwoman. Indeed. Katie Kane. Yeah. yeah. Who exemplifies both the, like, the virtues of uh, a service member and also illustrates some of the very real kind of historical factors that surround it in a way yes. that super tickles me as an army brat, mm-hmm. um, who... Loves but loves with a critical eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> History. It's like that. Yeah. Uh, so we also, we got some comic book news we sure this do. week. Yeah. Uh, we've tried to make a little time for some stuff. Uh, we got, and I just like to shout this out. It's only a one shot, but we need to. Oh, I, my I'm God. Ex- there's new, I'm new so mutants. I'm so excited. I can't wait. And not just new, new mutants, but Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Yes. New mutants. Yes. <laughs> yes. They, I don't know if you remember, but they reunited for a short story that was published in the 2000s. That sounds accurate, but I don't a know new, if I ever a got new that one. Story, I forget where it was published. I mean, by Marvel, obviously, in a comic book. But uh, <laughs> uh, and it was so great to see them reuniting then. It's great to see them reuniting now. I hope we get to see them reunite every 10 years because uh, Chris Claremont, Bill Sienkiewicz, New Mutants is one of my favorite superhero runs of all time. In addition to some of the uh, other artists who worked on it and Louis Simonson's New Mutants as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. New Mutants is, a, yeah, a book that's close to my heart, as you all have heard me say very many times. Uh, I am one of the those who will stand for the original issues of it, oh, but yeah. it is widely agreed upon that it achieved new heights when Sienkiewicz came on board and started yep. doing incredibly bold, gorgeous, out-of-the-box styles for a conventional superhero story about kids at a school yep. that, like, just opened doors that have happily never been shut. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you liked Demon Bear, which you did, uh, or if you need to check it out, do that, and then you'll be all caught up uh, for this special when it comes around. Just had to mention that. So, hey, what else is going on specifically at DC? Oh, my God. <laughs> so I've known about this one for a while. Oh, and you're I'm mean. so excited because, uh, Amy, you know me. <laughs> I'm a man of my stands. Yes. I stand for my stands. Mm-hmm. What's my name? Stan Humphreys, <laughs> and I hardcore stand the Legion of Superheroes. Okay, Sam, what is the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes is one of the major franchises of the DC Universe. It is a super team of teenagers who exist in the 31st century. So they, it is sci-fi, it is superheroes, it has ties to the DC Universe because of many different ways, but one of the major ones, they're inspired by the legacy of Superboy and Superman. 
but they get to exist in their own sort of universe of what the DC universe is like in the 31st century. Uh, Which is just the coolest, goofiest concept, it's and it's so, so wonderful. Cool. It goes back to, I want to say the 60s. Is 50s? it older than that? 50s. Yep, 50s. Okay. Yep. Uh, and there's been a, a ma- it, the Legion of Superheroes has really gone through and, and evolved through time. There's been so many fantastic runs of the Legion of Superheroes, and some of them are so different from each other, but I believe in it as a, as a concept and a franchise that can stand to interpretation. Yeah. Uh, and now we have the relaunch of the Legion of Superheroes announced with uh, Brian Michael Bendis. They're coming back! We haven't had them in the DCU in several years That's now. Right. Uh, and and uh, Ryan Sook is going to be the, the main artist. Can we talk incredible. about Ryan Sook? Oh my god. I feel like he's... So good. So good. I'm very excited to cross this line that I kind of don't understand why we've been on the other side of that, like, Ryan Sook should be on everybody's best of ever right. list. Mm-hmm. Like, just mm-hmm. to finally cement that, like, legendary status because, I, you know, he's just an incredible artist. The The preview image with the uh, scenery forming the L the of L, Legion. It, you can't see it because this is a podcast, but you should Google this it's so uh, good. and find that image. And they're, they're bringing it back in a... a a two, it's like a two-part one-shot. It's like a two-issue a two limited series called Millennium that is going to have different chapters drawn by different artists. And uh, one of them is Jim Lee, who you may have heard of. Another one is Andre <laughs> Lima Ararujo, my That's Portuguese so brother cool. and my partner uh, when I was in Marvel Comics. Uh, so I'm, I couldn't be more excited to see Andre draw whatever this lead-in to the Legion story is going to be. Yes, and then we're going to get an actual Legion book, and I, I do recommend looking up these. I, I, I forgot to save the quote, but uh, Brian Michael Bendis spoke to his love of these characters and what the setting of the Legion means to him mm-hmm. in a way that I think was just really profound and really moving. He talked about uh, what it can mean to write a story about a future with hope. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, you know... Certainly speaks to me very much uh, in in 2019 uh, to to look forward with hope to what can be built to people coming together from a million different worlds in service of those ideas. Yeah. It's, it is there's something really beautiful about it, and I'm very excited. Mm. I had no idea Bendis was a Legion stand because I think of him as like grim and gritty. Uh, like I love him very much, but it's sure. like yeah, yeah, if you yeah, like you detective like stories crime about murder or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he's on fire right now at DC. He's doing Event Leviathan, which yes. is very much like a crime detective story. It's like street level, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the same time, he's been working on Legion, which uh, couldn't be further in the future. I mean, I guess it could, but as, as far as we Apparently, go. Apparently, it's slightly further in the future, because I think we also learned this week that it's going to be like the 32nd century instead of the 31st. Someone was like, is that a typo? And he's like, no, I don't know what it means. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me going by what I see on Twitter. I get very excited. Uh, so yeah, that that's uh, we will certainly be discussing this in future. Legion is, of course, get, uh, relevant to this show. A great kind of untapped resource of adaptation. I mean, they've done some takes on Legion in some of the live action television shows, um, in some sure. of the animated stuff, yep. but mm-hmm. not enough. But they're always like uh, it's like the original trio of Legion superheroes visiting Superboy in the present, mm-hmm. which is a great uh, a classic story. It's the first appearance of the Legion of Superheroes. But um, you want to you want to go yeah. you want to go to the 31st century. And like I said before, there's so many different interpretations of the Legion. Uh, you know, in in the 50s, it's like super shiny, bright hope of the future, space age vision of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these superheroes, these teenagers in their clubhouse hanging out and defeating villains, and it's great, and I love it. And then in the late 80s, you have the, the five-year-later saga by uh, 
Keith Giffen and Tom and Mary Birnbaum, and uh, it, it, it's darker and it's dystopian, but it's still suffused with hope because they're trying to pull themselves out of dystopia. Uh, and then the Mark Wayne Barry Kitson run, which is all about like teenage revolution and like yeah. very topical to like you know all sorts of things that we've seen in the past few years and you know Occupy Wall Street and uh, resist movements and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very durable concept with a very strongly defined core that yeah I think could really make a fantastic television show. Oh, and also uh, shout out to I I just implied that we haven't gotten much lately, but we did get the fabulous uh, DC animated movie Justice League versus the Fatal Five. That's right, which had Starboy. Yeah, which mm-hmm. had a, a look at the Legion. Yes, um, but we're just saying there's so much potential there. Yeah. All right, real quick, we're gonna hop through some TV news. Okay, what do we got? Uh, first of all, we will we got a lot of great interviews and stuff about Jessica Jones. I'm gonna save that for when we're all caught up and we can and we have Koi back. Uh, but they've talked a bit about what it was like, uh, kind of the blessing of knowing that they were getting an ending so that they could plan for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We also, and this broke just before I think we went to record, Why the Last Man, Love of My Heart, a very confusing development process, back on. Back on? Uh, It looked like it... it the last news we heard very recently did not seem good. Yeah, they had yeah. lost the showrunners uh, yeah. for that show um, with a pilot in the can and a fantastic cast lined up. It was suddenly in jeopardy. Uh, it, there is a new showrunner, Eliza Clark. Yes. Who has now been attached. I had to look her up, but mm-hmm. when I did, I was super excited because she's a producer on Animal Kingdom. Okay, what is that? Which is one of my favorite shows going right Ooh. now. Fourth season just started. Uh, it, it is a fantastic... We're talk, talking about uh, interpretations. There's an Australian movie called Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. which is about a crime family, uh, and Guy Pierce is in it, and it's a fantastic film. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very kind of like sober and low-key in its parts. Um, and then somebody had the vision to say, hey, we could make a really explosive, over-the-top version of this for American television set in Southern California. <laughs> and it's all, like, surfboards and dirt bikes and fish tacos and shots of tequila and robbing banks. <laughs> and uh, a, a bunch of brothers who uh, do big crime all the time. And their mother, played by Ellen Barkin, who is so good in this Ooh, show. Wow. She's, like, manipulative but loving. And just uh, it, I, I love this show. Uh, Mitch Gerads, the uh, artist of uh, Miracle Man and uh, Batman occasionally, he loves it too. We both geek out about the show. And like I said, it's in his fourth season, and the uh, first three episodes are fantastic as usual. And they have great actors on it too. Dennis Leary was on it <laughs> uh, in season three, and he was playing um, a, a, a significant character we'd never seen before. Uh, I was ready for him just to like Dennis Leary all over the place. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Ah, I'm Dennis Leary, everybody. Sure. Just like ruin the show. He was so great. <laughs> and like, this, I, he, he does such a great job. Um, and uh, uh, I'm blanking on her name, but uh, Zoe Deschanel's sister, Emily De- mm-hmm, Deschanel, mm-hmm. she's on it. She's already been on two episodes, I want to say. Again, she's not just like, hey, I'm a famous guest star. Like, she is really inhabiting this role, again, a significant role from their past that we haven't seen before. So I, I, I love this show. It's one of those, like I was saying with Atlanta, where you feel the setting. It's That's wonderful. so authentic. Uh, you know, old, possibly apocryphal uh, Hollywood story about when they're developing The Godfather, where they're like, you, we want to smell the spaghetti. In, in Animal Kingdom, you smell the spaghetti, but it's fish tacos and tequila shots. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's I love.
love sentences that no one has ever said out loud before, and I'm pretty sure you just got one. Got it. Um, Nailed it. Nailed yeah. it. Uh, so that's it's exciting news. She's got a, a cool resume. She's a playwright. Um, a I don't playwright know if, as well. Yeah, exactly. They're still. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're still using the pilot that they shot. I know they have. Uh, uh, the actress Lashana Lynch, who played Maria Rambeau, uh, is mm, their three five five, which I have Amazing. just been so on board for for so long. Uh, and I, I just I want the show to happen, and I want it to be great. None of us know what happens behind the scenes and why people come onto or leave projects. Well, anything's gonna happen. You never know, but this is great news. Yeah, we yeah. got a couple trailers this week. We mm-hmm. talked about the boys earlier. We yep. have a trailer for Pennyworth yep. and a little glimpse at Batwoman coming soon to the CW. Yeah. Uh, I that Pennyworth trailer is so much fun. I love it. It's bonkers. I love it. And it's what a great <laughs> angle on Alfred, right? Yep. Yeah. Young Michael Caine having adventures <laughs> and bonding with Thomas. Yep. Uh, I, I it's 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 a weird Post, idea, but it's fun. James Bond. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, and then the, it's just a small piece of a glimpse at Batwoman, but I did enjoy it. It's just a oh, – yeah. there was a, a short promo that went out this week that uh, shows how much uh, Batwoman enjoys helpful instructions from random authority figures. Yeah. She does and not. She does not at all. <laughs> no, not into that. So I'm glad to see that. It's true to the character. Yeah. Yep. Just a nice little piece of that. We also heard this week in Sadder News that Ben Edlund's The Tick is Apparently officially, officially – yeah, yeah, done. Well – uh, the Tick has uh, had many incarnations over the years, had multiple TV shows, so I, I feel like we will not be without The Tick forever. Yeah, yeah, this this era of it might be done, but there's like this character has had a long and, and well loved, if like for some reason, never ten- the most. The Tick is as tenacious yes. as a cockroach. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we're all hopeful that there will be more future for The Tick. Uh, ben Edlund, of course, has a long and wonderful career in TV, as well as being the creator of the yeah. delightful, uh, unique, uh, and somehow unique, but able to have sustain at least three different much loved yeah. versions. Um, which comics, speaks yeah. well to uh, to any character. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, our just for fun this week is that if you have not seen Lebowski Thor playing guitar, <laughs> you should definitely make some you time just for need that. To go Google those words. <laughs> any sequence, really, any order. Yeah. But just go Google those words and check it out. Uh, and finally, uh, we have for Sam Humphreys. The uh, notes that I have just misplaced and I'm getting back to because my phone helpelfully decided to reload. Uh, terribly sorry. Oh, are, about we, that. are we getting to the, the hot we seat are. questions? We are. The hot seat. Oh my god. Uh, and this is the, the the real stunner. How much detail is put into each Dial H for Hero origin uh, that doesn't make it to the book? Dot 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 dot. Enough for a Jobu the Zonky King mini. <laughs> uh, the answer is yes, actually. <laughs> uh, we put a ton – so in Dialogues for Hero, as you said, a character uses the age style and they become a seemingly random superhero for an hour. Mm-hmm. So we we were like, we're, we don't want – we just don't want the superhero name and the costume and the powers. We want to show the origin. Mm-hmm. We Because what's more superhero than a secret origin, right? <laughs> so we want to show the secret origins. Some of them get longer sequences. Some of them get shorter sequences. No time for secret origin. Exactly. One of my favorite moments. <laughs> but uh, – yeah, we do think out these characters quite a bit. Joe and I talk them out a lot on the phone. Actually, Joe and I are scheduled to talk this afternoon about uh, Dial H for Hero ideas. Um, so, yeah, we, we talk this stuff out. And then really just for, for space and pacing considerations, a lot of it gets boiled down to the essentials. But, like, mm-hmm. Joby the Zonky King we had a whole <laughs> backstory for. 
Uh, I think at one point we thought maybe he was going to get like three pages for his origin and got smashed down to one or maybe less than one even. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the fun to think about it, and it, it informs the character, even if you don't see that full backstory on the page. Um, it, it's funny, it you, just you're just saying creators... that, I'm like, surely there were several pages, and it's like, no, that's just how I remember it, because you evoked just... so much so quickly with yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's like you're, you're, you're trying to just, like, pack it into this, like, the biggest moments, right? And each moment, each big moment only gets a panel, so it's like, yeah, you, you, you want it to hit hard. You want, you want people to start filling in the blanks in their mind. Uh, because that's that's the only way you're gonna have you're gonna get the blanks filled in because we don't have the space for all of it. So yeah, we could totally do uh, we could totally do a Jobu the Zonky King miniseries. Like uh, we have all the notes on it for sure. You heard it here first. Not at all confirmed, but boy, would we be in definitely line for not it. happening. But let's just all <laughs> pretend like it's happening. Let's just all say it's happening. Every no, I'm not do like a, a, a stapled mini comic <laughs> for conventions. That's just somebody's oh fake God. fan comics for Jobu the Zonkey King. I would love to see y'all's um, Jobu the Zonkey King fan art and <laughs> fan fiction, please. Uh, that does it for Giant Size Heroes. All thank right. you so much. Oh my God, thank you for so, having me. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, bummed to miss Koi, but I'm sure he's doing fine without we me. Might and, have to uh, just drag you back sometime, maybe. I would love to come back. Call me anytime. Excellent. You know where to find me. Uh, where can the folks listening to this find you and your work online? Uh, Twitter's the best place. I'm uh, at Twitter or on Twitter at Sam Humphreys. You are I'm at on, Twitter. I'm you heard at it here Twitter. first. He's yep. running Twitter. That is uh, is very confusing for a lot of people, but just <laughs> it's just my account, and I'm not going to change it. Uh, I'm at Sam Humphreys on Twitter, and I'm at Sam Humphreys on Instagram. Excellent. Thank you so much. Check out Sam's books. Uh, You are missing out if you haven't, but it's never too late to jump in and fall in love with a new comic. And until then, we will see you next time on Giant Size Heroes. Stay sweaty. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. (sighs) Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.